Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a global law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We also connect with domestic and international law firms for international legal issues. At ALR PRA, we help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Our primary activities are law law firm public relations, marketing, and credentialing. We also offer a wide variety of practice management services to help you with all the back-end business of managing a law firm. Today's guest is attorney Melissa Smart. She is the ARDC's litigation manager. The ARDC is the Illinois Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission. Ms. Smart is a frequent speaker on the rules of professional conduct as well as ethics and discipline. A website for more information is www.a. It's IARDC.org. So, again, I is in Illinois, IARDC.org. Now, Melissa did appear with us on uh, February 1st for the first part of our program. As you remember, that would be the day that the uh, snow started to fall here in Chicago. So we have a continuation of that program today. So we do invite our caller with questions. We do have a great show for you this afternoon. Your questions can be submitted either through email at nick, N-I-C-K, at A-L-R-P-R-A.com. Please put Law Talk Radio in the subject line, or please call in by dialing 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. The telephone number again is 917-889-9732, option 1 for the caller queue. Now, when calling in, please do mute your telephone while waiting to make a comment so that we can avoid unnecessary background noise. By way of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice, and the results may vary based on your specific facts and location. Communication with attorneys on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship, and this program link is politically neutral and objective, and counterpoints to views expressed on this show are welcomed. ALRPRA Incorporated does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests on this program. Finally, all callers remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Before we get moving forward, I want to read you a quick sponsor announcement. Um, the international software and technology firm of Marcus Stephen Harris LLC presents their software licensing webinar this coming of February 15, 2011. That's tomorrow. Negotiating software licenses is a complicated process that takes knowledge and skill. Changing technology and new methods for software development and delivery have changed the game. The consequences of getting it wrong can be severe. This webinar will focus on understanding software licenses, their legal background, and how to maximize your rights while minimizing your risks during the negotiation process. For more information about Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, please visit www.mshtechlaw.com, and if you would like to attend this webinar, you can find a link on the law firm's blog under their Publications tab. Additionally, as ALR Peoria is promoting this event, you can email me for more information. My email, again, is nick, N-I-C-K, at A-L-R-P-R-A.com, and we appreciate you passing on information about our events. Now, as for today's programming, Melissa Smart again returns for part two of our show, and she will answer ten common questions received from young attorneys and will share some history, policy, and other information about how the ARDC functions. You can learn valuable uh, information and practice management skills from the perspective of ARDC's litigation manager by listening and sharing this program with others, and you can also join in our conversation by dialing, again, 917-889-9732, option one for the caller queue. So, Melissa, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me back. How are you? I'm good. So it's a, a unique opportunity for you to uh, wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day from the ARDC. Absolutely. We're, we're all about love at the ARDC. All about <laughs> yes, love. Happy Valentine's Day to everyone. Right. Thank you. And it was just the ARDC's birthday as we spoke on our last show, and you shared with us some interesting tidbits on how it actually was formed as a temporary organization, just like our tollway. Isn't that right, Melissa? That was my understanding, yes. I don't know if that's urban legend or not, but that was my understanding that at the time that uh, these organizations, internal statewide organizations to discipline attorneys, weren't supposed to be, you know, full-time uh activities, but the issues of uh, professionalism within the profession itself became such that I think they made them um, permanent 
organizations. And each state has a, an ancillary organization just like the ARDC, but it's dependent upon the, in each individual state's constitution as to whether the legislative body or the judiciary would be responsible for handling the discipline of attorneys. Here in Illinois, we're a commission of the Supreme Court because pursuant to our state's constitution, that responsibility was given to the judiciary, ju the, judiciary the judicial branch, and therefore we're a commission of the Supreme Court. And that's how we basically started. All right. Well, thank you for that brief uh, history lesson in the inception of the ARDC. And I want to make a suggestion based on our past show. The ARDC really is here to help you uh, as an organization. They have wonderful individuals who will guide you through any problems you're having um, in your practice. And really, if you do get a, an inquiry or question from anyone at the ARDC, the best thing is to, um, as Melissa indicated last time, to really work with them. They're there to help and they're there to guide. Isn't that right? That's correct. I think you got cut off a little bit, but um, and so I don't mean to be repetitive, but absolutely. I mean, uh, we've always been an organization that stressed outreach and communication um, primarily, um, but with the advent of MCLE and now that this has become more mainstream for us, we've really put a focus on our outreach efforts here. We want to get to people and communicate with the um, attorneys before it becomes a disciplinary issue or problem. Um, if, in fact, you get a request for investigation, which is the initial start of our investigation phase. It's nothing formal. It doesn't mean you're going to be disbarred or anything. You just We get an inquiry and we have to investigate. If you get that, your best bet is to take things slow and to try to answer and give us as much information as possible. And as a matter of fact, on our website, we have um, a link to publications. And again, the website is www.iardc.org. And there's an article, a great article that was written by our former administrator um, that uh, deals with what to do if you get a complaint filed against you. There's also um, an article written by our Ethics Education Council, Mary Andrioni, on avoiding ARDC anxiety. And it basically tells you how to respond to a disciplinary inquiry. And again, I, I spoke last time, there's a difference between an inquiry and a complaint. And when I say complaint, it's like a formal term of art, meaning We've gone to an inquiry panel. They kind of act like our grand jury. They voted formal disciplinary charges. They've, they've said that there's enough evidence, clear and convincing evidence is our burden, that there's enough evidence to form the basis for formal disciplinary charges, and a disciplinary complaint is filed with our hearing board. Then once it becomes served upon the individual attorney, then it is public, and that is a disciplinary complaint. Way, way, way before that, that all starts out as merely an inquiry. We get 6,000 inquiries a year, approximately. I think we got 5,800-something last year. Um, so we get almost 6,000 a year. We only file about 100 disciplinary complaints a year. So you can imagine you know, only about 4 or 5% of the actual inquiries that we get form the basis for complaints. So people need to just kind of chill out a little bit when they get that inquiry. And, and you know, I, would, I would counsel them, take a look at our website, read up on that article about avoiding ARDC anxiety and how to respond to a disciplinary inquiry, and take that advice to heart. Wonderful advice, Melissa. Thank you for sharing that quick, condensed version of the procedural uh, aspects. And that is good advice. And so you, while you're receiving many complaints, we received uh, many people who listened to the last program. And uh, so we had hundreds of people uh, last time who learned that great advice. So we shall likely have hundreds, if not thousands more, um, with this advice today. So again, we want to avoid, avoid anxiety. So we're going to go through some of the top 10 questions that will likely cover some of the questions out there, and I do see we have a, a caller whose number I recognize already on the line, and we will say hi to that caller shortly after our first break. But before we uh, go to a break at half, half 15 minutes into the show, um, again, we do break for our commercial uh, and sponsor breaks at 15 minutes, 35 and 45, so um, that's always a good chance that we get to give to our, our guests to catch their breath, so to speak. So um, <laughs> let's just dive right into some questions now. Um, the first, my first question for Melissa is, what is an associate to do when a partner orders that associate to do something the associate considers improper? Well, that's always a good question. We do get that question a lot. And just so, if I may start from a procedural perspective quickly, um, we have an ethics inquiry program at our office. 
So if any attorney or even if a member of the public faces an ethical question or dilemma, they can call in our office and pose an anonymous hypothetical question to us, and we can give you guidance as to the rules of professional conduct. Um, we can't, it's not a binding decision. We are the prosecutorial arm of the court, so we can't give you a binding decision. But I think it's always helpful just to get an idea of what rules and where to start your own search so that you can make your own determination as to how to proceed. This is a question we frequently do receive um, because I think young attorneys are put in sometimes questionable positions and they need some guidance. And the guidance in the rules of professional conduct with respect to that inquiry come from Rule 5.2, particularly 5.2a. And it basically says that if the subordinate lawyer, the associate, is acting in accordance with the supervised lawyer's reasonable resolution of an arguable question of professional duty, then the subordinate lawyer is not violating the rule. Okay? But if it's something clear-cut that the, that the associate knows or reasonably should know is improper, then they can't hide behind that what, you know, so-called Nuremberg defense of my partner made me do it. So basically you have to look at the actual um, improper activity or the, what the associate considers to be improper activity and determine if that's the, the supervising attorney's reasonable resolution of the question or if it's something that's clear-cut violation of the rules. And if that's the case, then the associate attorney cannot engage in that conduct. And if they do, their license is on the line. All and right, that's, that's even it, even in a case in which it, it may they may face dismissal from their own law firm, you know they've got to put their ethical obligations first. They've got to follow the rules of professional conduct, even if that means that you know their supervising lawyer is going to terminate their employment. Okay, so again, to recap, it sounds like if you have a reason to know, you should uh, take a look. And if it if it does not pass the smell test, so to speak, um, be on the lookout. So again, even though so that's a great answer to that question. I'm not going to rephrase the whole thing. Our next question to move on. Question two is, is it proper to bill a client for time spent on airplane traveling to a meeting when that time is spent A, sleeping, or B, working on projects for another client who will also be billed for the time? That's also another good question. We receive frequent um, inquiries on that topic. Rule 1.5 governs in, in issues related to the reasonableness of fees. And the key term, again, is reasonableness. And I know we always heard that term a lot in law school. And, you know, these terms are defined in the rules of professional conduct. The real test is reasonableness. The overlying overarching test is reasonableness. Is the total fee reasonable at the end of the day? Now, with respect to the, the inquiry that you just posed, it appears to be kind of two-pronged. Can you bill for sleeping on the airplane? And can you bill if you're on the airplane working on other things? And there, there is some guidance with respect to the rule itself. 1.5a lists specific factors to determine whether it is or isn't reasonable, certain um, bill, billable hours, whether they are or are not reasonable. Um, and the other key is what you've communicated to the client and what is the client's understanding of what they will be charged. So with respect to the inquiry regarding sleeping um, and sleeping on an airplane, I would ask um, in return, does the client understand that they're going to be held responsible for travel time? If that's the case and they know that you're going to be on an airplane trip and if you, you know, catch a cat nap on the plane, I don't necessarily think that would be unreasonable as long as the client understands and has agreed to those charges, okay? The issue with respect to the client's understanding, though, is tricky because the rules do not do not mandate that fee, the billing fee schedule or that the uh, attorney-client relation agreement, pardon me, has to be in writing. Only in issue in um, instances of contingent fees does the fee agreement have to be in writing. Um, it's always best practices if you are going to have. Um, bill for time spent on airplanes and things like that to make sure that the client understands and to make sure that you've covered yourself that the client understands and has agreed to those fees to put that fee agreement in writing. Even though the rules don't say that you have to, it doesn't mean that you can't. So the best practice advice I always give is it's best to go ahead and put that in writing, get the client's agreement in writing and their signature on that page. Make sure everybody's got a copy, including the client. Now, with respect to the second subpart of that question regarding billing for time spent to one client on another client's matter. That gets a little bit tricky. There are some ABA formal opinions that kind of govern in that situation. And basically the ABA formal opinions have concluded that that, that type of billing is rather unreasonable. There's no way for the client to expect that they would be paying for you to work on another client's matter. 
So I would say, you know, and it's hard because it's, it's very fact-specific, but just from a general perspective, um, billing for, you know, one client while you're um, working on another client's matter, that would probably be unreasonable and probably not okay. Thank you for that answer to that question. I know that's probably something that comes up um, you know, pretty often. Uh, and again, uh, another tip that I will share with everyone, and this comes from my background in uh, family law, is, of course, always put everything in the engagement agreement. It's better to have your thing, uh, you know, everything decided up up front and also bill. And just because you bill everything doesn't mean you have to charge it necessarily. But in my background, in my experience, I can tell you that keeping a track, keeping all your billables straight, um, <clears throat> again, even if you know charge uh a certain amount of things is good to keep a contemporaneous uh, record of what you're doing as you're going along. So again, just documenting as you go and putting everything in agreement to avoid problems later. So um, Melissa, we'll be right back after we read a few messages from our sponsors and our first break. Okay, our first message is from from the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Your business may be exposed to liability if your marketing materials and slogans infringe on another's intellectual property. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity and guard against trademark infringement, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can also find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. The law office of Nancy K. Ducharme is there to help with your advertising copy review. Get in touch with Nancy today by visiting nkdlaw.com. Our second message is from Mary Erlane. Mary Erlane works to help professionals who learn the skill of connecting the dots and removing barriers. On March 15, 2011, from 8 to 9.30, Mary will conduct a hands-on Leadership for Women workshop for women rainmakers and leaders in business. This event will be held in the large boardroom at ALRPRA Incorporated, located at 35 East Wacker Drive, and ALRPRA is sponsoring your registration fees, making this a free event. Come by and enjoy a light breakfast and enjoy this pragmatic and acclaimed executive leadership workshop. Space is limited, so please register today by emailing nick at alrpra.com with women rainmakers and business leaders in the subject line if you'd like to reserve your complimentary seat to this workshop. ALRPRA Incorporated is a Chambers Business Suites tenant, and we thank Chambers for co-sponsoring this event. Now back to our Law Talk Radio program. We do encourage our listeners to call in with any questions by dialing 917-889-9732. Please press option 1 to be placed in the queue. Uh, Also, please submit your comments by email uh, directly through our Contact Us page at ALRPRA.com. Now back to our program. Melissa, we have a caller. Uh, If you'd like, we could take a caller at this time. Sure, that's fine. All right, caller, go ahead. Okay, a caller is not there, so we will come back to our... uh, Actually, I need to make our caller live here. All right, caller, go ahead. Okay. Hi, Melissa and Nick. Uh, Just a a quick... I think what I'd like to do is just sit back and listen and see what Melissa has to say and maybe um, have some comments at the end. Okay. Our third question for Melissa Smart of the ARDC is, may a lawyer admitted only in Illinois advise a client located in Milwaukee or another neighboring state on legal issues related to Illinois law, Wisconsin or the other state's law, a federal tax law, or does it matter where the meeting takes place? Well, it does actually matter where the meeting takes place, and I'll tell you why. Obviously, if you're an Illinois lawyer, you have to follow the Illinois rules of professional conduct. The Illinois Rules of Professional Conduct, specifically 5.5, states that a lawyer cannot practice law in a jurisdiction where doing so violates the regulation of the profession in that jurisdiction. So you have to look to what violates the regulation of the legal profession in that jurisdiction. What is considered the unauthorized practice of law? Now, sometimes that's clear-cut, you know, or what is considered the practice of law and what is considered the unauthorized practice of law. You know, that's very clear-cut in some circumstances, appearing in court, obviously, representing a party, that's clear-cut. But when, you know, as the hypothetical you posed, 
um, kind of indicates where you're just advising a client on, on certain laws. Um, you know, it's not as clear cut as, you know, I'm showing up in court, I don't have Pro Hoc Vichay permission, which, by the way, Pro Hoc Vichay permission is court by court basis. We get a lot of calls in our office, you know, how do I get admitted in Wisconsin or how do I get Pro Hoc Vichay admission in this jurisdiction or in, you know, Kendall County or something. You know, we don't handle that. That's a court-by-court court basis. And as a matter of fact, we don't handle the licensing of Illinois lawyers as far as the bar exam. That's the Board of Admissions to the bar. We handle the registration and discipline of attorneys who are already licensed in Illinois. So if you're um, in Illinois and you get some um, calls from people that are in Wisconsin asking you questions about certain areas of law, obviously you're an Illinois lawyer, you're licensed in Illinois, you can give advice regarding Illinois law. Where it gets tricky is can you give advice regarding another state's law? And that depends, and that's where where you're located makes a difference. If you're in that state, you have to look to what that state considers to be engaging in the unauthorized practice of law. Um, in some states, you know, just giving advice on their laws could be considered the unauthorized practice, and if you're not licensed in that state, that's, that's a violation of their rules, and you could be brought up on criminal charges for that. And then in addition to that, as an Illinois lawyer, you face disciplinary charges for violating 5.5. So you have to be careful as to what you're giving advice on. Um, if you're giving advice on federal law, you know, that's a different matter. It's my understanding in most federal jurisdictions, in order to practice, all you have to do is have a valid license in some state. You know, it doesn't have to be any particular state. Um, I think a lot of people get uh, Illinois law licenses. We have 88,000 attorneys licensed to practice law in Illinois. They're not all actively practicing. Some of them just maintain dual licenses. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Northern District of Illinois is a very active federal jurisdiction. Um, but you don't have to have an Illinois license to practice in the Northern District of Illinois, the federal court. You just have to have an active law license um, in some state. So for federal law, it's a little bit different, but by state by state basis, you have to you have to look at that jurisdiction and determine whether they what they consider to be engaging in unauthorized practice of law. Now, Melissa, do you ever work with any of the individuals in other uh, states as far as questions? If someone looks into this and they appear that they wouldn't have a problem, um, what happens in that point if someone calls and says, I've talked to this um, you know, other state or could you talk to this other state? Am I okay on this? That's such a great question. And actually there's a, um, a national organization called the National Organization Bar Council, NOBC, which is um, there's representatives of every state, you know, the equivalent of their ARDC, their disciplinary board from every state. And they meet once a year. I think they may even meet every six months to have a conference and to discuss you know, interstate issues with regard to professional responsibility. And I've had the pleasure of going on a couple of occasions. My husband always jokes, he's a lawyer, and he's like, can you imagine the nerd fest that is, a bunch of ethical lawyers getting together for a conference. But it's actually quite fun, and it's enlightening to see how other states deal with these issues. It also gives us the interconnectivity that you were just referring to, whereby I can call up the Wisconsin Bar, and the, the Wisconsin, um, that's how they uh, discipline their attorneys through their bar association. So I could call up the Wisconsin Bar and get some guidance or some help. We just recently filed, and it was a young associate in one of my um, groups here, in one of my litigation groups at the ARDC, just filed a complaint. And I won't state names because I don't like to do that, but um, an attorney who was licensed in Illinois as a lawyer, had a Wisconsin real estate license and an Illinois real estate license. And he was dealing with a divorce uh, situation in which he was representing an Illinois man. He was up in Lake County, and they were fighting about jurisdiction. Um, I think the woman wanted the case in Wisconsin, but they couldn't prove she lived there or didn't live there. Um, regardless, this Illinois attorney decides to use his Wisconsin real estate broker's license to gain entry to this woman's house because she had it on the market for sale. So he posed as, as representing prospective buyers and went into the home and obtained information that he then used in court in Illinois to prove that this, the jurisdiction issue should be you know, found on, the, on his side, that he, he should prevail on the jurisdiction issue. Now, this is just a complaint. We have not gone to the hearing board phase with this. We have not proven allegations of the complaint. This is merely a complaint. But nonetheless, you know, this is, this is the factual situation that we've been presented with, and we have no problem calling up Wisconsin and having their um, equivalent of their agency there, you know, giving us some guidance as to how we can go about who we can contact as far as Wisconsin real estate brokers licenses are concerned, um, law enforcement in Wisconsin. The, the agencies work with one another in these situations to give each other guidance and help in um, 
you know, all sorts of issues like that. And as well, we also help one another in serving complaints upon people because most disciplinary agencies, their rules provide that the individual attorneys have to be personally served with complaints before the complaints can become public. So we help each other with service issues and things like that. So um, national organizations like the NOBC or even the ABA, Professional Responsibility Committee, they're very helpful in keeping all the organizations together so that we can help one another. Because now nowadays, this issue of multi-jurisdictional practice and people maintaining multiple state licenses, it's just an ever-increasing um, phenomenon, if you will. And it's just, it's just a fact of life nowadays with technology what it is. People can be in California practicing immigration law and have an Illinois law license, and that's perfectly all right as long as they're following the Illinois rules of professional conduct. You know, so it gets interesting and gets tricky, but, you know, luckily we have these organizations in place so we can give each other some help and guidance. Wonderful answer, and I know that's a question that's come up before, and I know when I attended uh, one of the programs put on by your organization out in DuPage County that it came up a discussion uh, about people who practice intellectual property or some of the other, um, you know, or tax or some of the federal uh, practice areas. Bankruptcy had, is a big one. We have bankruptcy and they're all over the place. So very mm -hmm. good, very good information. Um, very complex. I'm glad Sorry. that, <laughs> well, no, it's, I'm glad that there's some there's something set up to deal with, you know, organizations like the NOBC so to deal with all these issues. So um, my next question is a question about stock purchase. So the question is, is it appropriate for a lawyer to purchase stock in a company Company, the lawyer represents in a direct competitor of a client. So it's a comp competitor of your client, and they want to buy your own stock in the company. I'm guessing this is a disclosure issue, but yeah, let's it's a big that's... conflict and uh, disclosure issue. There's a lot of waiver conflict kind of issues involved. The conflict rules are 1.7, 1.8, and 1.9. Um, 1.7 is the one I, I would look to first. I always look to that's our, like a general conflict rule. And you know, in the first scenario you you presented, where the you're buying stock in a in a company that where you represent that company, okay, um, it's almost like um, you know it, it, entering in a business transaction with your own client. You know, you're loaning a client money, or you know, there's a lot of disclosures that need to be made. And what you have to look to also is um, whether your duty of loyalty to the client is compromised by your own financial interests, and that's where the conflict lies. Um, you know, we get a lot of these cases where it all turns out great. You know, the end result is perfect. I purchased stock in the, you know, in my client's company, and I made a billion dollars, and the client succeeded in whatever litigation that I represented them in, and you know, everybody's happy. But still, there's an inherent conflict of interest in that in this fact that the, the attorney is is you know, gaining a financial interest in the client. And, and I think what you have to look to is, is it the same transaction? You have to look, and that's where 1.8 and 1.8, particular A and J, come into play. So you have to look to whether the duty of loyalty to the client is compromised by your own financial interest and the outcome of that situation. In the second scenario, when you said that the um, lawyer purchases stock in a company that's um, a direct competitor of their clients, you know, that's, also, I mean, that's rife with conflict, um, and the lawyer has to consider whether they can continue to zealously represent their, their client's best interest when they've got a financial stake in their competitor. You know, who's to say where, where the fiduciary duty lies? And obviously, it's clear-cut when there's an attorney-client relationship, the fiduciary duty lies with that client, and that cannot be compromised by your financial interest in the opponent. So that that issue again, you have to look to those conflict rules. You have to look to you know 1.7 and 1.8. And in in a situation like that last one where it's a real clear cut, you know, if the if the intent is to engage in that conduct, the client must be given full disclosure of the lawyer's relationship and the and and the not only full disclosure, but the client has to consent to that relationship and waive any potential conflict or use of confidences by the lawyer. And again, the rules don't mandate it. You don't have to put that waiver and that uh, conflict disclosure in writing, but as a best practices standpoint, I always say, why not? Put it in writing, because if you're going to rely on the fact that you, you inform the client of the potential for a conflict, the client waives the conflict, you might as well bother to get it in writing. If it's true that you really went through those steps, you might as well get it in writing. And therefore, you cover yourself in the event that something does go wrong. Because sometimes these things do go badly, and somebody loses money or somebody gets upset, and the client complains to us, and we see that conflict, and the first thing we're going to do is inquire from that attorney, did they get the waiver? 
did they disclose the conflict? And if they didn't get it in writing, it's a little suspect. All right. So again, disclosure and get it in writing and look at all your uh, look at all your rules. Again, thank you for giving us a list of the rules. Now, my next question is, and this is a sort of an advertising and marketing question, as we see so many attorneys in transition these days. This is something of a question that likely comes up a lot. So the question is, may a solo practitioner who employs law students, let's say they've got two law student clerks and they also have a paralegal, so they have several people there, but only one licensed practicing attorney. Can they use uh, Bob Smith and Associates on their advertising, so business cards and letterhead? That one's an easy one, and the answer is no. <laughs> and I could wax on and on forever, but I won't waste all your time on this. It's very clear cut from the rule. The letterhead that you use, and we see this all the time. I mean, we see it all the time. And I don't know why attorneys are so desperate to put themselves in an associateship. I don't, they always want to, I don't know if it makes them feel better or if they think clients are more drawn to the and associates title, but it's very frequent that we see it, and there really aren't any other associates. And guess what? That's false or misleading. And your letterhead um, is a form of advertisement, and Rule 7.1 governs. And Rule 7.1 says that it cannot contain false or misleading information. If you're implying that you practice in a partnership or that you have other attorneys that are working with you, then that causes that's a reasonable belief that you practice with other people, and therefore it's false or misleading and prohibited, strictly prohibited under the rule. There's cases that govern too. Now, if you wanted to individually list you know, your non-lawyer support personnel just to give the appearance that you're, you know, you're not just some solo guy working off his laptop all by himself, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, if you wanted to give the impression and make sure people understood that you have this support staff, you have a paralegal, you have law clerks working for you, you can individually list those. It's just got to be truthful. It can't be false or misleading. Okay, all right. And that's, again, those rules for advertising. Those changed recently, or there are some modifications or additions to the rules that carve out use of um, you know, firms like ours. Um, can you talk a little bit shortly about that, and then we do have to hop to a break? Yes, absolutely. Um, the 7.1, 7.2, I think 7.3 series, they all deal with advertising, solicitation, things of those issues. Um, and they were changed. And it's always, I always point out this um, funny fact that the prior rules that were in place up until January 1st of 2010, um, they considered solicitation um, the uh, attempt to contact people by any method, including um, I think they, the, uh, the um, stenographer or by um, – Oh, I can't think of those. <laughs> they, they use all sorts of outmoded communication terms, and they didn't include emails, Facebook, and things like that. So right. that's part of one of the changes of the rules is they tried to make the uh, changes to um, fit with technology so that the the rules themselves would speak to actual forms of communication, not outmoded forms of communication as they were in the past. Um, so the rules themselves did change a bit, but the main tenant, the main focus of those rules, that the advertisement, advertisement cannot contain false or misleading information, that did not change. That's still the same. Okay, thank you very much. I just wanted to, that's a nice clarification point. There are many people out there who were, uh, have, have talked to me who are a little bit confused and didn't know about those new uh, changes in the rules, so I appreciate that. Now we're going to pause for a break. For any of those who are tuning in just recently or listening to ALR, PRA's Law Talk Radio, we give you the daily legal news halfway through our show uh, every broadcast. And today's uh, legal news comes from the AMLAW Daily. It is The title is called The Careerist, Stephen Suzman on Hiring, and it's from Suzman Godfrey, a law firm in Houston, posted by Vivia Chen on AMLAW Daily News. Litigation powerhouse Susan Godfrey has always been idiosyncratic. In December, the 90-lawyer Houston-based firm announced some eye-popping bonus figures from 45000 to 100000 plus, and that has put a lot of New York establishment law firms to shame. The firm is also has on its way anointing a new way of anointing new partners. It outfits them with a pair of genuine Texas boots. So those mega bonuses and fancy cowboy boots sure sound sweet, but what do you have to do to earn those trinkets? Well, here's what Stephen Susman has to say about the hiring process. 
Besides the big money, you have to convince people to come to Susan Godfrey. Do you have to? Or how do you? He says the experience and the shorter time to partnership, it now takes six years to make partner. We have 60 partners and 30 associates. So when someone makes partner here, they become real partners. So, for more information about this article and other articles on big law and business and everything else affecting the legal community from C to C, you can go to the AMLAW Daily for your daily news. Our fourth sponsor of the day is Get Clients Now and Jim Thompson. Are you a solo practitioner or do you work in a small law firm and want to get more clients? If this sounds like you, there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to. His name is Jim Thompson and his program is called Get Clients Now. He'll help you take the the crucial steps towards increasing your law firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is a monthly guest on our Law Talk radio program every first Thursday of the month. After retiring from a fulfilling career as a trial lawyer, Jim Thompson decided to focus his time on helping other attorneys get more clients. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net and also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. Now, let us remind our listeners out there to share these broadcast links in their social networks. Many people do find our shows on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages, and we thank you for all your support in sharing this programming. Now, back to today's show with Melissa Smart from the ARDC. Melissa, my next question is, when a lawyer friend tells me about unethical conduct by a third lawyer, do I have an obligation to report that to the ARDC, what I know about the original unethical conduct, or what about my friend's failure to report it themselves? Well, that's always um, a big question we get, and that's probably the number one question we get, and people always call and say, do I have a human obligation? Do I have to report this? I heard through the grapevine someone committed an unethical conduct, or I know somebody committed an unethical conduct. So... Um, that's a real important question, and what you have to realize is that you, that HIMAL obligation is only triggered, and the HIMAL obligation is a mandatory reporting obligation that's contained in Rule 8.3, and that is only triggered if the lawyer has unprivileged knowledge of certain types of misconduct. It's not all types of misconduct, just certain types, and those certain types include if you have unprivileged knowledge that the other attorney has committed a criminal act that reflects adversely on their honesty trustworthiness or fitness as a lawyer, or if you have knowledge, unprivileged knowledge, that the other attorney is engaged in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. And again, that's in Rule 8.3a. And the key there is the knowledge. You have to know. What you just described sounds like, you know, someone heard something through the grapevine, somebody told me. I don't know if that necessarily qualifies as knowledge. Um, The word knowledge itself, like I said before, with the new rules of professional conduct having come out January 1st, 2010, they include a definition section. Rule 1.1 is a definition section. And um, knowledge is defined now, and it's defined as actual knowledge of the fact in question. So you'd have to have actual knowledge, and I don't know if in the scenario that you just presented there is that type of actual knowledge. All right, so word on the street is not uh you know what you've heard is not what you know. So again, uh, good to look up and understand the definition of knowledge in that section. My next question is, may a lawyer who's planning to leave a law firm, again, we have so many attorneys in transition these days, so they mm-hmm. want to leave their law firm and they want to let the clients know their plans and they want to take new business to the new firm. Uh the question is then may a lawyer who has left their previous firm contact those clients that they served with and ask them to bring the business to her, um, and the question comes up with this duty to the client sometimes, and it gets seems to get confused. Um, and I actually worked at a law firm where one of the senior associates um, left that law firm and had what was expressed as a, a duty that attorney felt towards the clients, where that attorney was the attorney of record. Uh, to let the clients know where they were. Again, if they just left that law firm and didn't tell the clients, they would be um, under. They'd, they'd have some problems, an ethical obligation to tell them. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, being you know two years at a law school, that's that's what I was taught and that's what I uh, heard. But um, I'm I'm curious as to your comments. 
Well, it's, it's definitely a situation where there's competing interests. The first thing you have to look at is, is there a special agreement which governs? I mean, sometimes there is, and that makes it quite easy to determine. But absent a, a separate kind of employment agreement, the client employs a law firm and not the lawyer. So, and that's decided in case law, in the case is Cordy versus Fleischer. So you have to remember that the client's employing the firm, not just the lawyer in the firm. However, the competing interest part comes in when you realize that the, the, the client has the right to choose whether he'll continue to use that law firm or transfer his business with the departing lawyer. They have that choice at any given time. So, and that's in 1.16. That's our, our rules of professional conduct again. So, you know, if a lawyer leaves a firm before completing work on the matter, um, the departing lawyer could, you know, potentially notify the lawyer's client of their departure and advise the client of their right to decide who will complete or continue their legal matter. Um, that seems to be just a fairness standard. It's also in the ABA model rules of professional conduct and their lawyer's manual of professional conduct. Um, it seems to me the most professional way to go about it is to do a joint notice from the law firm and the departing lawyer so that both parties' interests are represented and the utmost respect is paid to the client, and that's the key. You have to make sure that the client is well informed, that they consent to everything, and that they understand how their case is going to be handled, and that they ultimately can decide who they want the case to be handled by, the firm or the lawyer. And I think that's always the best way to, to go about doing it. Um, rule 7.2 also kind of governs in the situation. It generally allows a departing lawyer to notify clients for whom he has worked that he's leaving a firm and he can advise them of their right to retain him in the future. Okay, very good answer, and that's a really good way to, I agree with that, have the firm write something that's both from the firm and from the departing uh, attorney. Um, hopefully in a transition uh, process, that is what happens. And again, this does trigger um, on February 25th, which is Tuesday, attorney Laurel Bellows, who works in executive compensation, and Mark Harris, who works in, uh, as a lawyer in technology, will both be on the program talking about smooth employee transitions. So again, it's a lot about agreements and having things set up ahead of time uh, and then making sure that trade secrets or you know, other intellectual property is not is, is properly managed uh, on the exit. So again, smooth transition. Everyone should just remember whether you're at what stage in transition. It's just a matter of life. People don't necessarily stay together for that long in, in, in certain uh you know, part, even partnerships uh, have a, a rate of dissolution that many people might be surprised by. So again, just it's, it seems so appropriate to me to just to be um, mature about the situation, and again, remember that the client should come first. Um, so, I, I, Melissa, I thank you for that uh, answer. Um, I do have another question. We're going to deviate from our our list a little. I got a text from someone um, who asked me a question about unauthorized practice of law as it relates to law clerks and paralegal staff. Um, and the individual shared with me that oftentimes in order to run the firm, the, best, well, the way they have that set up is that it's the one uh, solo practitioner and then a few law clerks and paralegals. And the individual had heard through the grapevine that some individuals were uh, <clears throat> suggesting, and I don't know who, where it was suggested, but um, a concern that law clerks uh, could possibly be entering unauthorized practice of law, or the paralegals are, are doing that when the when the situation is that the attorney asks the law clerk to, uh, you know, act more like an associate. Um, you know, what, what's the general rule of thumb there? Well, it's in, in, improper, inappropriate, and it would be a violative. It would be violative of the rules of professional conduct for a law clerk or non-attorney to um, engage in the practice of law in any respect. Um, we do receive calls about that. Um, you know, unfortunately, our office, you know, our hands are tied. We can't uh, do anything with respect to the actual law clerk or, or the um, individual non-attorney because we only can license attorneys, and our only enforcement mechanism is, you know, to censure someone, reprimand someone, or to take away their license to practice law in some respect. So if it's a non-lawyer, we can only report them to the criminal authorities that they're engaging in the unauthorized practice of law. But if they're doing it at the behest of a licensed attorney, that licensed attorney is going to face an investigation by our office and possible disciplinary charges. The other thing you have to keep in mind, and this is something we actually received a phone call about this, um, and we uh, it generated an investigation, um, and that was an instance in which an individual who was asked to do and perform these tasks 
um, reported the potential misconduct. And then that individual, as often as the case, is a law clerk or the law student. When they went to get admitted into the bar, they faced additional scrutiny by the Character and Fitness Committee, which, again, is part of, part of the Board of Admissions to the Bar. It's not part of our organization. But because this person had agreed for quite some time to engage in the unauthorized practice of law and was even appearing at depositions um, on behalf of an attorney, their license to practice was held up. And I don't know ultimately whether they were admitted or not, but they had to go before the Character and Fitness Committee and answer to why they were engaging in this misconduct. So it's a very serious problem, um, and we we don't see it often, but when it when we do see it, it's often difficult because usually a law clerk or um, we had an instance in which a young associate, a licensed lawyer, was asked to to prepare pleadings and sign his name to pleadings that had been written by a an uh, uh, attorney who had been disciplined, and that attorney was suspended for a good couple of months, and during that period of time, he never stopped practicing. He was just having the associate put everything in her name. And so that led to formal charges against the attorney, the, against the uh, the attorney who had already been suspended. He faced additional discipline because of that conduct. So it's it's a very serious problem and one that should not be allowed to uh, uh, continue. And, you know, I, I want to stress as well, you know, we talked about HIMO obligations, and when the HIMO obligation comes into play, that's that mandatory reporting. You don't have to wait to have a HIMO obligation. You can go ahead and report an allegation of misconduct if you believe in another attorney is violating the rules of professional conduct. So you don't have to wait around for knowledge. If you think that something's going on, you can go ahead and report it to our agency and we're obligated to investigate. Obviously, though, if you're trying to um, um, live up to your HIMO obligation, you should know that HIMO, the HIMO obligation is only it comes into play in a certain circumstances. But if you, know, if you have knowledge that another attorney is having um, a law clerk or a young associate you know, use their name or engage in the unauthorized practice of law, you know, please bring that to our attention. We could certainly investigate. It doesn't have to be a HIMO situation or a HIMO report. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good advice. Again, I think that there is a propensity for people to use law clerks inappropriately. And if you have a law clerk and have a question about what they can do, what they cannot do, you know, it's one thing to have your law clerk researching and writing on something. It's another thing to have your uh, law clerk calling to advise a, a client when, well, a call to communicate. Um, using my verbiage carefully here, you to communicate when the next court date is um, and indicate that you're sending them an order. It's quite another thing to uh, have your law clerk call the client, explain certain things. You know, it's, it's, I, I think that too many people try to use uh, law clerks at a lower pay rate uh, as a pass-through in, instead of um, you know, an appropriate uh, attorney. So, again, if you have questions like that, always call the ARDC and ask first. And if you have any questions about some other person's conduct, again, Call and ask. So open right. lines of communication, just the best. What's the telephone number again? Oh, I'm call? sorry. Um, our number is 312-565-2600. That's our general number. Mm-hmm. Um, and also keep in mind that, you know, our, all of our rules and decisions are on the website. So you could check and you could do your own legal research on certain issues so that you can answer some of your questions before even bothering to call us by just looking at some of the rules. And, and a lot of that, what what can a law clerk do, what can a law clerk not do, that's discussed in case law. So you could always look that up on our website. You could also see the ISBA for information. And another um, avenue of research for attorneys who face ethical dilemmas is to go ahead and check with your male practice insurance carrier. Now, I don't know about the terms of all male practice insurance policies, but most of them allow for inquiries because they want to encourage you to call before it becomes male practice. So consider also calling your male practice insurance carrier. You're God only knows you pay enough for malpractice insurance. Call them and see what they have to say about the ethical issue because they want, you know, they have a vested interest in helping you determine what is the best ethical course of conduct. So they might be able to give you some guidance as well. So such a good, such good advice. Again, everyone should always read their malpractice. What I tell people, clients, sometimes is that, um, you know, insurance is no good if you're not covering all the terms of the policy and it doesn't mm-hmm. pay. So, <laughs> read the policy, read what the requirements are. Oftentimes, you will see that you do not have certain systems, and that's one of the things that we do is we go and help the people uh, install some systems or different things so that they avoid ARDC complaints, so that they avoid malpractice claims. Again, it's just um, doing your homework and having your house in order. So we're going to pause. And if for I our, may, oh, yeah, go okay. ahead. 
No, I just real quick. <laughs> I always say this because it's a free piece of advice and it's real valuable. Um, and again, it goes along the lines with regard to reading your policy. In some instances, if you respond to an ARDC inquiry before notifying your malpractice insurance carrier, you effectively waive coverage for that ARDC claim. In some instances, so read your policies because I've had cases come in where people responded just because they're interested in telling us the truth, but they responded quickly. They didn't notify their malpractice insurance carrier. We went ahead and filed formal disciplinary charges, and the malpractice insurance carrier refused to pay them for their attorney to defend them here at the ARDC because they wrote into us and therefore um, waived their policy rights before they went ahead and checked with their malpractice insurance carrier. So when you get an ARDC inquiry, read your malpractice uh, uh, policy first. You may have to notify them before you respond. Okay. Good. There's almost there's so many things to know. Um, I know. Sorry, but that one's a big one because it'll <laughs> save you a lot of money if they pay for your lawyer here. Yeah. I know what well, they charge on the defense end. It ain't half of what I'm getting paid, or it's twice as what what I'm getting paid. Well, and they, yeah. you know, that yeah, would be yeah, it's worth it. Another reality is that sometimes um, you end up teaching. I, I've had people tell me that they've sort of had to school the um, the malpractice carrier on, their, on what their practice area was all about too. So I'm, they're all again, you know, stop and do your research first before you act or do anything. So that's right. always just good advice. So our law practice management resources today are coming to you from ABA Publishing, the Law Bulletin Publishing Company, and ALR PRA Practice Management Services. First, ABA Publishing. This book is called Flying Solo: A Survival Guide for the Solo and Small Lawyer Law Firm Lawyer, Fourth Edition Copy. It says newly revised and completely updated. The fourth edition of this comprehensive guide includes practical information gathered from a wide range of contributors, including successful solo practitioners, law firm consultants, state and local bar practice management advisors, and law school professors. All the contributions share tips and advice that can be easily implemented into your solo or small firm practice. This classic ABA book walks you through a step-by-step analysis of the decision to start a solo practice, including a choosing a practice focus. It then provides tools to help you with the financial issues, including banking and billing, operations issues such as affecting staffing and office location and design decisions, also technology for the small law office, and marketing and client relations. What's more, the final section on quality of life issues puts it all into perspective. So, whether you're thinking of going solo or new to solo life or a seasoned practitioner, Flying Solo provides time-tested answers to real-life questions. Our next message from the Law Bulletin Publishing Company, when you subscribe to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and Chicago Lawyer Magazine, you'll receive up-to-date legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. Also, check out the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips for those lawyers going through a career transition. It also hosts a monthly career seminar for lawyers in flux in their careers. I am one of the weekly advice columnists published from the Attorneys in Transition site, and I hope that you visit and leave your comment at attorneysintransition.com. Finally, from ALR PRA Practice Management Services, consulting webinar and hands-on desk reference materials are available for instruction from law firm management, marketing, technology, and finance. This acclaimed service options are great for attorneys in transition and attorneys entering solo practice. Please visit our school page at alrpra.com for more information. Uh, now, our final sponsor uh, moment section of the day is commercial from credit damage George ex- uh, credit damage expert George Finder. Your credit score and reputation are valuable assets. If you suffer damage to your credit score, you consider your damages, and credit damage expert George Finder is an expert who can put a dollar amount on the damage to your credit score. George Finder is one of the only credit damage experts in the country. Attorneys and plaintiffs who have retained his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas, such as personal injury, employment, family law, and general civil litigation. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions into the intake process, you and your staff will learn to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder is available for consulting on damage to credit reputation. The credit damage expert website full of resources 
www.creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and his expert services. And a message to our listeners, please do share our programming. Do not hesitate to call in with any questions or counterpoints. Uh, telephone number for the call-in is 917-889-9732, option 1 for the caller queue. And again, questions or comments can be submitted through our contact page at alrpra.com. If you have programming or guest selections, again, please share them. With the Law Talk Radio fan page on Facebook, simply search for Law Talk Radio on the Facebook search bar at the top of your uh, homepage on Facebook. Um, now, back to our program, and I want to uh, mention uh, another thing and ask Melissa. Uh, this is, again, going back to advertising law. Credit damage expert George Finder is, is not a lawyer. He can use expert. Can we uh, remember what, what's the current status of what you can and cannot uh, indicate in your advertising? Well, oh, again, <clears throat> the advertisement rules are at 7.1, 7.2, 7.3. So is the advertisement rules. And the general premise, as we discussed before, is that you know, any communication regarding a lawyer's service cannot be false or misleading. Um, and, you know, you have to consider that, you know, you have to make all the facts necessary to make the statement considered as a whole, not to be materially misleading. Um, the 7.2 deals with specific advertising techniques and whatnot, and, you know, 7.2b says you can't give anything of value to a person for recommending a lawyer's services. Um, you know, it includes any communication made. Um, so, I mean, there's there's a lot to, to deal with with regard to advertisement. Um, but what's so helpful now is that the new rules of professional conduct, the ones that came into play January 1st of 2010, they now um, include comments, which we never had before. And it's so important to read the comments because that's where real good guidance comes into play. And there's a lot of great guidance in 7.2 with regard to, um, you know, advertisement, what you can include in advertisement, the effectiveness of the advertisement, the taste. I mean, just is it in good taste, certain types of advertisement? Um, you know, can you use speculation? Things like that. Should, you know, what about un undignified advertising? You know, that's not something per se that's um, violative of the rules, but it's certainly something you'd want to take into consideration. And from a best practices standpoint, try to stay away from that type of, uh, of advertisement. Sure, sure. Speaking of advertisement, you are, our, our next question is coming up. Um, so let's hang around with the 7.1s and 2s. The question is, may a lawyer send an information newsletter to people and businesses the lawyer does not currently represent? And what if the newsletter is targeted to people who are likely to be on the list of lawyer services? So what we're really asking is, with our, our, our networks and our contacts, um, who can the lawyer be sending communications to? What are the general rules here Sure. Newsletters are a form of solicitation. And, you know, this is the way they define solicitation is, is it to promote the law firm services in order to obtain legal business? You know, are you trying to generate money from this um, communication? And, and it, given that uh, description, newsletters would be considered a form of solicitation. And all the rules that we just discussed would apply. Um, and the rule before I was thinking before the break um, that was changed because uh, it, it referenced certain older forms of technology was um, the 7.3 discusses solicitation via telegraph, which just cracks me up that that was in the rules up until <laughs> 2009. And, you know, it just shows why these rules needed refreshing and, re and needed updating. And also the comments are so helpful as well, as I already alluded to. Um, Solicitation is okay. I mean, I think we get the perception that you can't solicit business. It's the improper solicitation that's in, in it's a violation of the rules. If you're going to mail things to prospective clients, as you stated in the hypothetical, it just has to be clearly marked as advertising material on the newsletter and on any envelope that contains the newsletter. And that's basically the general premise of the rules, keeping in mind also that it can't be false or misleading. All right. Our next question is referrals. Um and again I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight and bring our, our friend Jim on the line who Jim, how are you doing today? You like all this good material? Do you have any questions so far? Uh this is absolutely incredibly good stuff. Um I think you might want to have Melissa on about once a week. <laughs> There's so much stuff out there with regard to to uh traps and pitfalls and things that lawyers lawyers might uh, get into. Um, well, I, I just had a couple of questions, um, and I get asked some of these questions. So um, when I, I guess when somebody files an inquiry, or, or, or uh, I, I don't remember exactly what the term is, but a complaint, uh, a, a layperson files a complaint with your office, 
uh, how much information should they provide? And then if your office gets it and they want more information, is that relayed to the person who um, would be filing the complaint? Absolutely. You know, we just ask that you provide any and all information necessary for us to form um, a good investigation. You can attach documents. You can attach bank records. It's always helpful when you're going to complain that an attorney didn't uh, abide by the terms of the contract. Attach a copy of the contract if you have it. Attach a copy of the check that you paid the attorney. Cancel check. That's always helpful. It helps us do our job. But obviously, you know, you, sometimes people don't have all those things. So it's not, you know, a given. You don't have to do that. But give us any information that you have that would help us perform our inquiry. Now, as far as if we need additional information, that is one of our mechanisms. We wouldn't hesitate to call up what we call a complaining witness and ask them for additional information. If they, we don't understand their complaint or if there's some information missing, we don't hesitate. But we also have subpoena power here. So we could go ahead and subpoena bank records if we wanted to. We could um, subpoena the file from the attorney. We could go ahead and, and request that the court provide us with a copy of the court file so that we could determine if there was, in fact, neglect or failure to show up in court. So we could um, inquire of the complaining witness additional information, or we could just go ahead and seek that information on our own. Uh, another quick question, what are the, the various levels of discipline and, and how are they, they meted out? In other words, what determines one discipline, say a month suspension versus a six-month suspension versus uh, a disbarment? There's various levels now. The um, now I don't want to like grade them or anything, but the the um, on the low end of the spectrum you have a reprimand, and a reprimand is meted out by our hearing board. That's our trier of fact, and the reprimand itself is not reported um, on our um, as an official disciplinary matter from the court. There's no mandate from the Supreme Court that comes down reprimanding you. Now, if someone were to check our website and want to determine if you've ever been reprimanded, yes, they could find out about the reprimand, but it comes just from our hearing board trier of fact. Next after a reprimand is a censure. A censure again, um, some people say slap on the wrist. It's not, there's no time served. There's no suspension period. Um, it's an official form of discipline. It comes down from the court and basically it's saying you are censured for engaging in certain rule violations, for engaging in certain misconduct. Um, that is reported on our website as well and that is a mandate from the Supreme Court that you are officially censured and that becomes part of your record. Someone could look it up and determine that you've been censured. Now then after a reprimand and censure, we get into the suspension periods. Um, you know, you can be suspended from the practice of law for any period at all, and that all depends on case law and precedent. The administrator determines what he feels to be a recommendation for discipline. As a prosecutor, I go down into the hearing board and I make our case. I present our case. I, you know, I present our witnesses and I ask for certain discipline. That's the recommendation from the administrator. The hearing board makes its own conclusion. They, you know, makes conclusions of fact. They make conclusions of law, and then they make a recommendation for discipline. Sometimes they accept the administrator's recommendation. Sometimes they take the other party's recommendation. But regardless, what is generated at our trial level, hearing boards generate what's called a report and recommendation. That goes up to the Supreme Court, and eventually there's an appellate process that I won't get get into today because it's kind of lengthy to describe the whole process. But you know, eventually the Supreme Court issues its mandate. The suspensions themselves, usually we see them range from 30 days to three years. I've never really seen, I've been practicing now here at the ARDC for 12 years, I've never really seen any discipline under 30 days. I've never really seen us. We've seen some suspensions over three years, but what we, the rule of thumb is if you're suspended for more than three years, it's effectively a disbarment, so we might as well just go with the disbarment. So usually you don't see more than three-year suspensions, although there are some exceptions to that rule. Generally speaking, nowadays we don't get many more than three years. And then the ultimate suspension or the ultimate um, discipline is disbarment. Um, and if you are disbarred, you um, and if you're disbarred as a result of a disciplinary trial, a contested matter, you have to you'll be out for five years. And after that five years is over, you can petition for reinstatement. The burden's on you to prove that you're fit to practice law. And there may be um, further proceedings related to your petition for reinstatement as a result of your disbarment. So it's not an automatic you get to come back in after five years. After five years, you're allowed to petition for reinstatement. Most do not because it's extraordinarily high burden. And an expensive process as well to be reinstated to the practice of law. There's also in between there, you can strike your name. If you have charges, if you're facing charges that are ultimately going to lead to your disbarment, some people cut bait and strike their name. The only benefit to that, you're still disbarred and your name is removed from the master role, but the benefit to that is that you can petition for reinstatement at three years rather than waiting five years. 
But again, it's a little consolation considering the reinstatement process is quite lengthy and, exp and expensive. Wow. That, so those are all the things that can happen to you if you do not heed advice of Melissa Smart on our show today. <laughs> Melissa, we are running... the rules. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Sorry. Um, and we have, we're running over a little bit, but yeah, we, we can do that. No, it's, it's, no, it's okay. This is good uh, information. I have one last question. This will, mm -hmm. I'm sure Jim will appreciate this too, because one of the things that Jim helps people with is, again, the, um, you know, getting more clients and referral networking. But referral fees is another uh, buzzword uh, in the legal community. So what is the current status and what should people know if you could, we could just, and this will be our last question, if you could just sure. leave people some um, advice and rules of thumbs on referrals between attorneys, fee splits gen and generally, um, and so forth. Well, referral fees are okay. I mean, if I can leave you with anything that's positive, referral fees are okay. Some people tend to think that they're not. You can divide a legal fee where the only service performed by the other lawyer is just merely referring the client. 1.5G governs, but it's very, it gives you very specific requirements that you have to follow in order to make that referral fee appropriate. That means you have to disclose it to the client. You have the referring lawyer has to assume some legal responsibility for the for the case. The client has to dis to consent, and not only to consent to the referral, but also to the division of fees and responsibilities, and ultimately the total fee has to be reasonable. But other than that, you can assume in general circumstances that referral fees are okay. You just have to take a look at 1.5G and follow the, the guidelines there. All right. Thank you for that Jim, short answer Jim, to that question. Jim, yes, go ahead. Yeah, one quick follow-up to that. I know uh, referral fees between lawyers is what we were talking about, but what if a lawyer is um, licensed to practice in another state and not in Illinois? Can they then participate in a referral fee? You know, I'm not too sure about that. Um, you know, you mm -hmm. can't share fees with a non-lawyer. That's specifically spelled out in the rules. Right. But um, as far as splitting fees with a lawyer from another state, I would think that's allowed, but I'm, not, I'm actually not, uh, not well-versed enough to know if that's specifically okay or not. Okay, thank you. I'd guess you want to look at that, you know, whatever that other state, uh, their rules too. So. Right, exactly. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Jim, for your uh, comments and questions. And thank you, Melissa, for being in the program today. No problem. Anytime. All right. And uh, contact information too. Um, last, last, uh, Melissa, if someone has a question, they should call you. How do they get in touch? Um, they can call the ARDC's general number, which is 312-565-2600, or if I can recommend our website, it's extraordinarily valuable, www.iardc.org. We've got publications on there, how to avoid ARDC anxiety, how to look up whether an attorney is licensed, there's registration information, and most importantly, there's some free webinars on there where you can get free CLE credit and the much-valued um, professionalism MCLE credit, the PMCLE credit, is on our website for free. So please check it out. All right, wonderful. So I'd like to also thank our listeners and sponsors uh, for uh, supporting and tuning in to today's broadcast on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. Number one, we had Marcus Harris of the technology law firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC. Number two, Nancy K. Ducharme of the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Three, Mary Erlane of Peak Marketing Sales and LMI Riverside. Four, Jim Thompson of the Midwest Consulting Group and the Get Clients Now program. Fifth, credit damages expert George Finder. Now some upcoming shows we want to remind you about, and you can always visit ALRPRA.com for more uh, upcoming broadcast information. On February 15th, we have a panel on international child custody issues. We'll be talking to a few mental health experts to talk about international domestic relations issues. Then on, two, on Wednesday, the 16th, we've got Corey Chalmers from A&E Network's program, Hoarding Helpers. We're going to talk a little bit about animal hoarding behaviors and focus on some of the recent uh, cases where animal hoarding has appeared in the law. Now, by way of disclaimer, again, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on your facts and location. Communication with attorneys on this show does not give rise to attorney-client relationships, and this programming is politically neutral and objective. Counterpoints to the views expressed on this show are always welcomed. ALRPRA and Incorporated does not necessarily endorse the opinions expressed by guests. And finally, all callers do remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Again, these Law Talk radio broadcasts are programmed to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area information they can be used 
they can use to be better informed practitioners as well as consumers of legal services. Now, with guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective advice. Again, this is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time.